Kia ora. In this online edition of Tiahika, we feature the documentary Remembering Makariti, a radio biography about the life of Maggie Papakura, produced by Paul Diamond. When a carpenter in the small Oxfordshire village of Oddington cleared out his workshop in 2000, the funny bit of carved wood whose flat back he'd been using as a workbench came to light. The wood turned out to be a 19th century Māori carving, like others found in 1946 that had been built into a farm pig shed and used as fence posts. To find out how Māori carvings ended up in the English countryside, you need to go to the other side of the world, to Whakarewerewa, the famous geyser valley in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and the home of an exceptional woman who led a remarkable life. Papakura, well, she's a very beautiful lady. And she was very clever, and she acted as a guide, and she could walk around showing a bishop or somebody like that and tell the details about the site she was showing. Or she could walk around with a, one of the worst villains and her conversation would suit either position. How well I remember my young days when I lived at Whakarewarewa with my kroa Maihi de Kako Barao and Maikuya Marara, his sister. Those two fine old people of the old order who lived their good and simple life, not knowing a word of English. We lived mostly at Whakarewarewa during the winter season, going to Parekarangi now and then to get potatoes and other foods, as nothing was grown at Whakarewarewa owing to the heat of the ground. Our kainga at Pare Kārangi was close to the forest, and the only sound we heard was the singing of birds, which was a wonderful sound, and the Mangakara stream flowing over its pebbly bed. She was trained and nurtured and raised and taught by people from another world and another generation until she was eight years old. I know and feel that with all the education I have received, for which I am most grateful, I am at heart just the same as when I spent all those happy years of childhood with my queer and kroa. When she moved back to Whakarewarewa and um, when her father, after his various meanderings around the island, um, returned to the Rotorua area and reclaimed his two talented daughters, Margarete and, of course, Bella, 
Um, at that time, he removed them both and set about arranging for them a classic English education so that Makariti was enrolled at Mrs. Stoddart's school by the Willows in Tauranga, and she describes that experience herself. That was the most horrible year of my life, she told an English magazine interviewer. But I learned how you people think. She got out of there and um, ended up as one of the outstanding pupils at Hukarere, which is another story. And I know that the school itself is incredibly proud of her achievements. She walked proudly and confidently in both worlds, and she relished the experience of both worlds without shame, without embarrassment, without awkwardness. Yeah, well, you see, she had two marriages. She married an Irish surveyor named Denon, and that's where she had her son. And then they got divorced. So where are we now? What part the, of the village are we in? We're right in the centre of the Whakariwiriwa village and we're, we're walking through the steam because it's sort of like a particularly misty day today. This is actually a living village. I mean, this is not really a tourist attraction. It's actually where we live our cult. We live and we, our, our big meeting house there, through the gap there, you can see Paula's Wahiau, our ancestral tupuna meeting house. You can feel that the ground is warm and, it, and there's steam everywhere, so it evokes all those sort of lovely things when you're visiting home and you think um, this is where she was and where she lived. She came back here guiding, and that's when she uh, met the right people, as it were, you know. What did you think of, Ma of Maggie? Well, she could behave. She could uh, be a lady, and she could be the reverse when she liked. And, of course... Uh you would have a lot to do also with our Maori guide, such household words that were still remembered today. Yes. Needless to say, Sophia was outstanding. But she was a very old woman, and uh, I've told you what she did in the eruption in 1888. Yes. 86 at least. And uh, she was looked upon and respected by everybody. Perhaps not everybody, as guide Sophia was prompted to write to the Premier in 1900, asking to be registered as a guide at Whakarewerewa. Ko te take i tono atu ai ahau, kwa raru rawa ahau i taku mahi arahi pākeha, i tētihi atu wahine, ara a mākereti tāme. The reason for my making this application is that I am in great trouble in connection with my acting as guide for European tourists, owing to the action of another woman named Makareti Tame. No te mea, kai te kaha tonu ahau ki taua mahi, a inaia nei, kwa kore rawa hau e fifipaakeha hei arahi i taua wahine. For I am quite able to undertake it, and now I do not get any Pākehas to guide through that woman who has caused this trouble to come upon me. Kai noe tonu atu tōpononga, kia whakamana mai taku tono. 
Your humble servant ever prays that what she asks for may be given effect to. I have to state that I do not think it is necessary to specially authorise anyone for this purpose, went the official's response. If she was so authorised, it would deprive others from acting. She, of course, takes her chance with others. There are one or two other guides, young women of good address, who no doubt run Sophia very hard as she is getting old and has not the energy of the young people. Shortly afterwards, Margaret's guiding persona took an unusual turn and Margaret Tom disappeared. They were actually Toms. They were their father was um, um European and uh because Maggie's of course she was a guide in the Fakadiwa area and um she just chose the name one day and she named herself um, after a geyser, the Papakura geyser. And she was guiding over there the geyser that she was actually near when she picked her name is uh, sort of dead now but she was standing there and somebody asked her her name a Maori name she said she thought well Tom doesn't sound very Maori and she was just standing by the Papakura geyser so she just said Papakura and it stuck <laughs> so even the family were known as the Papakuras you know and so that was a name that became part of her identity and who she was. I think it was part of the entrepreneurial flair. You actually um, built up a little legend about your people and yourself, and if that was giving yourself a, um, a name that related to your tribal area, then that's how we did it anyway. Early in March of this year of grace, 1901, the Honourable James Carroll, native minister, issued a circular to the chiefs and Maori tribes throughout the North and South Islands, calling upon them to meet at Rotorua in the month of June to welcome their royal highnesses, the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall and York, then about to leave England on a tour of the colonies. The Maori people was stirred as never it was stirred before, and never will be again. Well... That was in June 1901, in the middle of winter. And needless to say, we were all very excited about it. Uh, the, one morning, they did the Ohinemutu and the sanatorium grounds. And in the afternoon, they went to uh, Waka River River. And after informal cheering, they proceeded to the scene of geyser activity. The royal party entered the domain of the geysers by the bridges over the Puarenga, over which stood a handsome leafy arch erected in their honour. Mr. Clark, the government inspector, was in charge of affairs. Sophia, the famous guide, one of the few survivors of the Tarawira eruption of 1886, conducted the Duchess, while her niece, Maggie Papakura, took charge of the Duke. The whole party lingered for a while about the big geysers. Maggie is the personage of Whakarewarewa and bears her honours with regal courtesy. Her handsome face, framed in its scarlet kerchief, is most fascinating to watch, and her voice is musical and soft while her English is more refined than nine-tenths of the Pākehā visitors. This soft, low voice, an excellent thing in a woman, says Shakespeare. 
I mean, she was like the media superstar of one of the media superstars of her day. I mean, really, from the visit of the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall and York here in 1901. I mean, that that really was a big turning point, wasn't it? It did. It, it elevated people, as it does today too. It elevates people into into um, stardom because you are famous for your contacts or yeah. or your exposure. Or and it, what it is is a pride. It's people become very proud of your of being able to actually hoof it in those circles as well. And and she was able to do that. Who. Her manner of speaking and her grace. I hear grace and dignity about her all the time. Maggie Papakura of Geyserland, that is sufficient address for any letters to Maggie, is in town this week, looking as fascinating as ever and chanting softly to her friends in her mellifluous Maori voice. Maggie's fame as a Whakarerawera guide has spread to most parts of the civilised world, and the celebrities she hasn't met aren't worth mentioning. Her carved boudoir in the Geyser Valley is papered with photos of English lords and ladies, admirals, generals, bishops, famous singers, famous actors and actresses. She has an autograph photo from the present king, and she was one of the few who managed to secure Lord Kitchener's autograph. Maggie surely could fascinate a stone. We also came across a very interesting lady um, some time ago, Florence Harsent. Maggie was the... Head guide, of course, in charge of all the other guides. And Florence had lived, uh, she died when she was 102, and we were lucky enough to be able to go up in her 100th year for her birthday. And, and it was more fascinating because we'd come across a book that she'd written. It was called They Called Me Temari. And so she wrote her life history. And so it was intriguing. We, she told us many stories which we've archived too. Um, one of them was that. Uh, she was actually sent away for being... She was a disobedient child, Florence, and she was sent to the mission school in Whakarewarewa to become a temperance and a good um, lady, a good Christian lady. And one of the things she mentioned in the book, which sort of got my back up initially, was that um, she didn't approve of the way Maggie conducted herself with her young people. She had a concert party, and they used to give concerts in, in the town and people used to go to this Maori concert and she was the leader of all that. She got all the good jags, the pretty girls to do the poi dance and, and the ones that could sing well, she gathered them all in. But we felt that she was taking the young girls into these things and putting them into, into temptation, not really looking after them morally. Being pretty Maori girls, they were easy prey. She was very musical and uh, did a certain amount of guiding. In the, uh, in the uh, first Rotorua Carnival in 1904, they had, a, uh, among other thing, items, was a Maori canoe, 
uh, races. And unfortunately, the Wakarua boys lost all their races. Bella looked upon this as a huge joke. And she started what is now known as the Maori Canoe Poi Dance. Yes. She used to get the girls down in front of the guys at the hotel every night, sitting on the ground as they do now with their poise, and she taught them that dance. It was her own invention, and it was uh, practically, uh, you might say, throwing off at the uh, I see. at the boys who lost the race and say that the <laughs> girls could do better. However, that dance is now one of the most popular dances we have in the country, I think. I've got this diary that we had, it's a family diary of Makariti's, and if you read the pages you can read between the lines some of them, and her writing is beautiful, beautiful script, and uh, she makes observations about the people she um, is guiding. What sort of picture do you, do you get, did you get when you read that, that I, diary? Well, one of the things that, that I, I built up was the fact that she was a really clever lady. She was a tribal leader. January 31st. 1907. Read articles in Herald on Māori huckers by two cowards under the non de plume of Māori lander and a visitor to Rotorua. It is wonderful how many evil-minded wretches there are in this world, needless to mention how I feel. A good thing those two did not live in the olden days. Sir, I was a fortunate spectator at the great Māori gathering at Rotorua during the Prince of Wales' visit, and the remembrance of the stirring war dances performed sets the blood tingling. But the bestial exhibitions now exhibited at Wakarewa produced the utmost feelings of disgust. That such dances should be termed huckers is nothing short of an insult to the native race and the thousands of tourists who, in good faith, expect to see the representation of a war dance. One feels inclined to write very fully on the matter, but enough for the present. Marylander. Sir, I myself, unfortunately attended by my wife and daughter, was lately induced to attend a haka at Hakarewerewa. Anything more obscene, so far removed from even attempts at natural gracefulness, it would be hard to imagine. And whilst our police are pursuing such a vigorous campaign against indecent and even suggestive pictures, to allow these dances to go on seems very incongruous. I have a fair knowledge of the Māori language, obtained, I may add, in southern districts, and some of the songs are worse than vile, and the evident relish with which they are sung is added to by the gestures. If the authorities have no wish to interfere with the natives, surely Europeans are entitled to consideration. They are induced by the native guides to attend an ostensibly innocent poi dance, and on arrival are often shocked and grossly deceived. Although most of my admiration for the Māoris evaporated long ago during a close business connection with them and with a knowledge of the language, I think something should be done in their interests in this matter, as well as on the score of public decency. A visitor to Rotorua. Sir, I was pained and shocked very much on reading the letters. I have been connected with hakas for some time, as my sister is leader in the poi and haka at Whakarewarewa, and I have never heard any complaint made of them. Why did they not walk out, 
if they thought there was anything obscene, or stand up in the hall and tell us that it was vile if it was so. Of course, anything is vile to evil-minded persons. And I can but say to these individuals, Oniswa ki malipons. Māori lander and visitor would do well to look nearer home than interfering with the Māoris, who are well able to look after themselves. The poi and haka are graceful dancers, which give pleasure to pure-minded people. Let a visitor to Rotorua come out from behind the shelter to the non-diplume he has adopted, the shelter of one who can only be sheltered as a coward, and we will then know whether he is a pure or evil-minded individual, and whether he is a foe worthy of our steel. Maggie Papakura, Guide, Whakarewarewa, Rotorua. Papakura of um, Rotorua and her sister Bella were the two principal guides who um, succeeded Sophia. I um, met them and knew them very well indeed, these two uh, wonderful women. Um, Bella was the dance genius of New Zealand. What that woman could do with her eyes and her hands and her body, well, was nobody's business. She was a, a wonderful example. I doubt whether we've ever had a poi dance uh, like her since. Uh, Bella, and it's a Maggie, she had a fine brain and uh, she used to guide the um, notables when they came to Rotorua, uh, the, the Duke and Duchess of York, um, um, high dignitaries from all parts of the world and she corresponded with these people. Uh, she wrote a wonderful hand and had a great knowledge of English and um, uh, she had a number of girls that used to come to her worry, which, by the way, was a carved worry. Uh, all the furniture was carved, and the, the worry was the most wonderful example of Marriott. Well, they used to meet in this worry at night time and uh, sing songs, uh, which gave me an opportunity to take them down. I remember on one occasion, uh, Maggie and I were talking, and uh, the uh, girls came in dressed in boys' clothes and started to sing uh, a marified version of American coon songs and um, put on a marvellous performance. And it appears that they had been down to the uh, hot pools and taken the boys' clothes who were in swimming and came up and put on this term. They were very shy about it. When they'd finished, they were, or disappeared as quickly as they came. But I thought to myself, if an, uh, an entrepreneur had seen them, he'd have thought, what a, what a marvellous uh, show for, uh, to take all over the world. Which is exactly what happened. The famous Maori guide, Maggie Papakura, who was to give a series of entertainments in Sydney and Melbourne, under the management of Messrs J and N Tate, leaves New Zealand this week to that end. With her are a company of 22 poi dancers, as well as her sister Bella, who invented the canoe poi dance. The Sydney troupe, complete with carved Māori village, impressed a syndicate of Sydney investors. In October, Maggie leaves New Zealand for England with a Māori troupe of entertainers, poi dancers, 
hikerists, canoeists, etc., etc. And we guess she'll have a good time when she meets all her old friends in the cold old land. There are 40 coming over, 22 men, 15 girls, and three grown-up women with tattoo. We are going to have a village as we had in Sydney, and whares will be taken across, and pātaka, etc. And bringing across all mitato pōpoki, unless some unforeseen thing happens. Bella will lead the dances, and I will attend to the choir. The men also will be a good specimen of our race. The picturesque character of their dress, the rich swarthiness of their complexion, the magnificence of their physique, the wonderful variety and interest of their performances form an attraction that is so fascinating as to be irresistible. Maggie Papakura, who has, so to speak, taken them under her protective wing, is a Māori lady of singular charm and high accomplishments. She is equally at home in greeting personages of high distinction in addressing the public from the stage of the Māori Theatre, and in delivering an after-dinner speech. I cannot express to you, at any rate in English, how much I have grown to love your country, to love your people. Makariti told an English newspaper reporter, Before I came, I seemed to know England, for I had learned your language, your history, your geography in my home. But how many things did I not know after all? There is the beauty of your country. I have been staying with English people in Oxfordshire. I have been to Oxford. How shall I speak of the peaceful meadows, the streams, the grey, silent old buildings? They spoke to my heart. She went with the concert party, but she had met Staples Brown here. And when she got over there with the concert party, she met him again. In January 1912, the returning party arrived in Wellington. Looking very smart and up-to-date in a blue serge travelling rig and beaming all over with smiles, Maggie Papakura came back to us this week with her Maori troupe from London. Maggie is not a bit the worse for wear in spite of her arduous show experiences in England. The brown and buxom Maggie is engaged to an Englishman, a Mr Staples Brown, as all the world knows by this time. Maggie was asked about the matrimonial fixture when she struck Wellington the other day. She smiled a winning smile and said she might get married, or she mightn't, or she'd see, as the case might be, or Taihoa, or something of that sort. Maggie can be as non-committal as a Prime Minister when she likes. Despite favourable publicity, the trip was not a financial success. Half the group also opted to remain in London including Mita Topopoki's 15-year-old granddaughter, Tetai. The chief had personally promised her parents the girl would return safely. A hostile reception was accorded the leaders of the Maori touring troupe on their return from London. The feeling amongst the Rotorua Maoris has been running very high for some time past concerning those who had organised the tour, and on arrival of the party at the railway station there was no demonstration of welcome. The party proceeded by special bus to Whakarewa Rewa, and there the pent-up ill-feeling against the leaders took a sensational turn. Angry words led to blows, Maggie Papakura being the chief storm centre. 
Maggie Papakura, the much-travelled and much-boomed Maggie, ran into a real Donnybrook fare-up at Whakarewa-Rewa the other day. In the row which followed the arrival of the Maori troop of entertainers back from London without a bean in their pockets, the silvery-tongued guide nearly had her head broken. It must have been a lively affair, that welcome home. Maggie is personally very unpopular amongst her people, and that unfortunate tour of the Maori party hasn't improved matters. Weightier arguments than words were used to press upon the well-known guide the opinions of her compatriots. A sister of Aparo, who died at sea while crossing the Indian Ocean, aimed a blow at Maggie, when one of the troops stepped in and warded it off with his arm, which was broken in three places. Mita Taupopoki was also cut across the face, the weapon being used a stick. Afterwards, something in the nature of a general melee is said to have taken place. Maggie Papakura has not, up to the present, returned to her worry in the native settlement, but is staying at the Geyser Hotel. Maggie will have more peace and honour away from Geyserland. You will be surprised to hear that I am back in England. Makariti wrote to her friend, T.E. Dunn. I did not let them know in New Zealand or Australia that I was coming to England, and only my relatives and friends knew. I did not want my movements to get into the papers. Besides, I had retired from public life many months ago, and have no wish to have my name in print again. I am married to Mr. Staples Brown, whom you have already met. I want you to meet my Tani again. Very few people know I am in England, and I do not want anything to go to the newspapers. Makareti's efforts to stay out of the limelight in England were successful, but we get glimpses of her life as the lady of three country houses in her letters to Dunn. Kia tune, e hoa, tēnā koe kōrua ko Mrs Tune. Greetings to you both and family. By rail this morning, Dick sent you a brace of partridges. The shooting yesterday was a huge success. You know, few people know the work that she did during the war, looking after the soldiers, um, looking after the wounded, um, dashing around, taking care of people constantly, opening up her various homes. She had um, three households. Um, and then after all of that, um, stirring up and fundraising for the erection of a rather maudlin pieta, which was commissioned by an Italian or from an Italian sculptor and is now in the church at Oddington. On a Māori carved plinth, you know, which in itself is, is, is extraordinary, and um, in which the actual inscriptions, the words, are in both languages, both Māori and English. It was only the 1920s, you see, and uh, cultures don't always mix very well. And uh, although Maggie had been educated in all things Māori and all things European, and so on and so forth, and she'd done her job with her concert, she'd been introduced to royalty and all that sort of thing. But you don't know a person till you live with them. You see, well, uh, whichever culture you try and marry with another culture, there's got to be a clash because each one would cling to their own culture.
you see. And since uh, Staples Brown was one of the, uh, well, shall we say, rich and well-educated English family, he would want everything English. And despite Maggie's education and her attempts, she could not possibly uh, appear as an English rose, as it were, you know. So I should think that would be it. It was cultural slight differences, mm. you know. And uh, so they got divorced. It's astonishing to consider that someone like Marketetti a forceful, dynamic, visionary Māori woman and someone exceptional for her time actually gave away a life of success and glamour and no small achievement in Aotearoa, New Zealand and relocated herself here to Oxford and um, to the spires and hallowed halls of the university and, of course, this institution. You can't work here for long without knowing about her because of the um, intense interest that there is in her um, from New Zealand, but also um, sort of within the museum itself. It's also, I think, ex extremely interesting and valuable for an anthropology museum to have material that was given given to it directly by um, someone with such a strong connection to the material. So this is material from her family that um, she had very strong connections to. So the museum has sort of acquired uh, uh, not just the objects, but a real sort of sense of, of their importance, I think. Well, I remember her because I went to school in the same road in Oxford that she lived in. Warmborough Road and on Wednesdays uh, we used to get half a day well it was up to me to nip down the road to my grandmother's and have lunch you see and then my father would pick me up and that's the most I remember of her is during that those periods because uh, she my mother and she or she and my mother didn't get on so uh, she didn't get invited out to Oddington. Uh, my mother never went to see her in Oxford. Only my father went to see her. So uh, we didn't see a lot of her, you know, but I used to go there on Wednesdays and have lunch and I can remember all the uh, tyres and cloaks and things like that that were hanging about the place, you know. Uh, it used to frighten me a bit then because I was only seven. <laughs> what was she like? Well, she was kind enough and she certainly provided you with food, but she used to dress in these long black clothes. And the thing I remember most was she used to wear a big wide-brimmed black hat and she'd come creeping through with your lunch like that. I thought she was a witch, you know. <laughs> uh, there was, I think... Uh genuine interest and genuine respect. Oxford, as well as being this sort of ivory tower elitist institution, is also an extremely democratic one. Once you're in, you're in. Once you're part of Oxford, you're part of Oxford. and um, uh, So everybody uh, gets treated in the, the same way. And I think that, that uh, you can see that through 
sorts of records of meetings. Mm. She was a member of the university. A member of the university, mm. member of the uh, University Anthropological Society, um, and uh, you know, reading you know, Penniman's introduction to the old time Maori, uh, you get, just get the sense of, of uh, equality and mutual respect. Those of us who knew her can never forget the slight turn of her body which set the pupu skirt curling and uncurling, or the graceful and intricate movement of the poi balls in the canoe song composed by her sister Bella, or the thrill of the motion of a weapon which she took from our awkward hands and held as it should be held. When she wore Maori dress she became not only her former self but all her people. And it was not only the chieftainess who stood before us, but the Tangata Whenua, the lords of the land. No people ever had a better ambassador and interpreter than the Māori had in her. I think she must have been lonely, because uh, she was a stranger in a strange land, and apart from the colleagues that she worked with, how do you break into a cold society? It's difficult, you know, it's not now because people have got used to different nationalities living everywhere, you know. But in those days, England was for the English and nobody else, you know, that was the attitude. And then in 1926, she came back. I am delighted to be back in dear old New Zealand. I have so looked forward to my visit to my Māori people and their friends. And it was then that she was made welcome because the people here had realised that it wasn't her fault that the youngsters were left in England. So they made a great big fuss of her then. But she came back to verify facts and things for the book. Well, I met her first in person when she came back from England to Rotorua, to Wakarewa here, back around about 1926, the mid, mid-twenties anyhow. And... Uh, we were living in the Tuhuromatakaka, that's the meeting house just up here. And that was Maggie's house, you see. And she came to live with us. And uh, that's the first time I ever met Maggie. Makeriti, we, we, we called her then. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to, uh, to portray in words the look of Maggie. But if you can picture uh, Queen Victoria with her big bust and sitting in a high-backed chair and looking down at her people, her empire, then you've got an idea of Maggie when she came to Rotorua. She had this, you know, look of arrogance about her, without being too snobbish. But she had uh, a regal look about her. She was majestic. She was beautiful. And there was no doubt about it. I'm not mincing words. And I'm not exaggerating her looks when, when she came. Uh, the, the whole of, of Hoka and Rotorua knew she was a beautiful woman. And when you talk of beauty, it's hard to explain just what beauty is. They say it's only in the eye of the beholder. But everybody admired her for what she looked like and how she spoke and how she uh, carried herself in public and in private. When she went back to England, we were living in Auckland. And she came and stayed with us, waiting for her ship to sail. That's when I saw her. Well, I had to give up my bedroom. My crow said, oh, what did the moine talk here? But my bedroom faced the east, 
and uh, the sun used to come in. And that's the vivid picture I have of her sitting there combing her hair. And she had beautiful hair. And the sun would stream in through the window, you know, and the hair would sort of glisten. And that's the living memory that I have of her. Oh, she was beautiful. Her, she had very fine, fine features. And Maggie was one of those who, who came back from England and inculcated things which are of value to us. Things Māori, and when she spoke with this Oxford accent, you know, it, it inspired us to, to speak just like her, you know, uh, that type of uh, language. <laughs> and uh, we copied everything she did. She uh, inspired us, really. She inspired us with, with the fact that uh, she spoke such perfect English and perfect Māori, which, you know, which is strange. Uh, a lot of Māori people, they spoke Māori fluently, but they couldn't speak English fluently, uh, apart from being uh, engrossed in conversational Māori. To describe Maggie, she was meticulous. She was uh, very particular, even in the way she ate, the way she, she used to teach us how to hold a knife and fork at the table. She was that type, uh, and she was so strange. Uh, insofar as we were concerned, you know, the old five fingers were the forks <laughs> in our day, and uh, uh, when she looked at us eating with our fingers, uh, it didn't go down too well with her. But she had to remember, she was brought up in that environment with fingers, when grandmothers fed their children, not by regurgitation, but by chewing the food in their mouths and giving it to their youngsters. And Maggie, I would think, was brought up in the same way as a baby. I can't even remember whether I said anything to her. Well, she stayed with us about 10 days, I think, before her ship sailed to go back to England, and she wasn't back there long, and she died. Her death was untimely, and I believe from um, the materials that I've read, I believe that she was on her way home. I have been ill for a year, and am only now getting better. She wrote to her father in 1929. Expenses were so great with doctors, specialists, and nursing home bills, and with nurses at home, that I am next week going to a cheaper house where I shall have to economise till all accounts are paid up. It has been a dreadful time which makes me shudder when I think of it. I am wondering whether this will reach you before March the 10th. I wish you, dear father, many happy returns of the day. I am praying that you will keep fit and well. I hope to come back next year. God bless you, dear father. Ever your loving daughter, Margaret Staples Brown. And uh, no doubt she would have come back again once the book was finished. But, of course, she went to church on the Sunday and on the Wednesday, I think it was, she had a heart attack and died. Mother died very suddenly indeed, as she was only ill 24 hours. Her son, Teonui Denon, who had moved to Oxford, wrote to T.E. Dunn. She was cycling around Oxford on Monday the 14th, 
and that night at eleven thirty, when going to bed, her legs became paralysed. But towards Tuesday morning, after the doctor had arrived, one leg recovered its normal strength, while the other remained dead. She suffered a lot of pain all day Tuesday, and in the evening I got the ambulance and sent her to a nursing home. All this time, the doctor did not consider her condition serious, and said it was only a matter of rest for a week or two. He injected morphia to ease the pain. After arriving at home, mother was quite bright and comfortable, and insisted on my going back home with instructions to call early next morning. She died during that night between twelve thirty and four a.m. through hemorrhage of the lungs. Death was only a matter of seconds, according to the doctors. The people at Walker cabled to have her taken back, but her wish was to be buried at Orrington, expressed to myself and the rector. It has been all so sudden, as no one seeing mother on Monday or even Tuesday could imagine her to be dead Wednesday. Mother was well on the way to completing her book, and was to present her thesis to the university for her B.Sc. on May the seventh last. It was thirty thousand words, and was almost certain of attaining her object, but alas, it was not to be. Her mother's cloak and many other ancestral cloaks and green stones covered her bier during the funeral at Oddington Church, where she had recently placed a memorial for the Maori contingents who fell in the Great War. A year after her death, her people in New Zealand erected a memorial to her at Fakarewarewa. Well, my name is Glenys Edwards, and I live in a small village of Oddington, about nine miles、um, north of Oxford. And Oddington has about forty-six houses. And it has a very interesting connection with、uh, a Maori princess who's buried in the churchyard of St Andrew's Church, Oddington. And we actually get lots of Maori visitors, which is great. They've been coming now for for years since about nineteen seventy three. I think they started coming.、Um, and over the years, we've made friends with quite a lot of them. And normally, we get one minibus load a year. They come on the Sunday nearest to. Anzac Day, and they have a service in their own language around Maggie's grave, and we usually have a picnic together afterwards. Most of them live in London. Maori's are settled there, and then during the year we also get quite a few odd visitors, singly or in twos or threes, who've come over from New Zealand, and they they hear about Maggie, and she's very highly respected, of course. And they always seem to be very sad that she's buried so far away from her own people, and they keep threatening to take her ashes back to. Back to New Zealand, but they never have yet. I think they've decided that we really look after her quite well, after all. And it's just lovely to have that connection. And we get lots of people coming to look at the Maori War Memorial, which is inside the church, which Maggie Papakura had put there in memory of the、um, Maori soldiers who lost their lives in the First World War. And、um, we've got to know a lot about Maggie over the years. What do you think it is about her and her story that that has intrigues people so much? I suppose it's because it's you know a bridge really to the other side of the world. And she hadn't finished her book, so a colleague of hers, with the help of the elders at this end, because he had to verify everything and make sure it was all right, he finished the book. And、uh, of course, it didn't get published till nineteen thirty-eight. Her greatest gift. To、um, not only Oxford University and the Pitt Rivers Institution, but also to us as、um, her descendants, both metaphorically and literally, 
um, her greatest gift was her book, was her writing. Mm. And um, the old-time Māori, I think, is um, one of the most pivotal and exciting works to emerge from the pen of a Māori author. What I feel is particularly um, revealing about that book is that it presents to the reader and to the mokopuna what a Māori woman, what a mother, what a grandmother felt about her world. How well I remember sitting on the taumata, the brow of the hill, looking down on that dear old kainga and on the fine old people who occupied it, that old generation who have nearly all passed away. I close my eyes and I'm there. A lot of people have, have, have got interested and done bits and pieces of work on her and her story and on the collection, um, but as yet nobody has, has managed to, to put it all together and put it all in the pages of one book to satisfy So I mean, I think it would be lovely for somebody to do that, but there's something about her, um, uh, the complexity of her and the complexity of that story, that particular person and that particular time. Um, and the fact that the story continues. She's probably viewed, she's probably more famous now to me than she probably was, than she was then. She had more than one life and I think that's what makes her really exciting. You see this frivolous, flaky female in this great big white lace bonnet and then you have um, the arrogant, chiefly aristocrat in um, full Māori ceremonial gear. And then you have a very dour, pensive, scholarly, well-considered intellectual. She has a whole range of people. Maggie's left us enough clues to um, gauge that her life was a fascinating and interesting one and that um, um, she's still an inspiration. As I say, she could adjust her conversation to the person she was taking around. In remembering Makariti, you heard in Rotorua the voices of Jim Taonui Denon, June Northcroft Grant, and Huhana or Bubbles Mihinui. In Oxford, the voices of Makariti's biographer, Professor Nahuya Taoe Kotuku, the curator of the African and Oceanic collections at the Pitt Rivers Museum, Jeremy Coote, and Glenis Edwards. You also heard Florence Harsant and Henry Northcroft, who were both interviewed by Cheryl Cameron the Australian composer Alfred Hill talking to John Thompson in 1958, and the former manager of Thomas Cook and Rotorua, H. Desborough. <laughs>